few years ago, after we finished the retreat on Maui at a rented facility, I had asked several of our local Sangha members to help me pack up all of the retreat equipment and bedding and kitchen supplies and meditation hall supplies to pack them up, put them in a rental truck, drive them to our home where we store them until the next retreat. And it's quite a big process. It takes several hours and several, several people, several hours. And at the end of the day, we were home at the home and everybody was just kind of looking around for the last things to do. And I looked around and I found this box of kitchen supplies left over. So I looked through it and I picked up this one box and I said to my friend Duke, Hey Duke, how would you like some wheat-free, sugar-free, dairy-free, chocolate chipless chocolate chip cookies? <laughs> and he said, there are some things in life I can do without. <laughs> and I think the question for us is, what in life can we do without? How can we simplify our life in a way that's more in alignment with what we know about ourselves from our experience here, our practice? We can see that we can live quite well without most of the activities and distractions and accoutrements of our life, at least for a period of time, among like-minded friends willing to practice together. But it's difficult to let go. You know the Buddha's Four Noble Truths that I spoke about the other night. The first Noble Truth is the truth of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. Second Noble Truth is it's caused by craving. <clears throat> well, craving is attachment, hanging on, being identified with, neediness, yearning, longing. That whole activity of mind of acquiring, accumulating, consuming, having, and kind of living off of that activity. Now, let's be clear. In life, we need a lot. We need a lot of support as a human being to navigate this life as a human being in the 21st century in the West. It's a given. But let's also acknowledge the reality and the fact that we all have seen so clearly we have way more stuff, activity, distractions, beliefs, hopes, dreams, plans than we could possibly use in a multiple lifetimes. When we come on a retreat like this, we leave behind our home our family, our friends, our familiar distractions, not because there's something wrong with them, 
Well, maybe there is, but <laughs> that's not why we come on retreat. <laughs> we, come, we come on retreat because there's, there's a knowing within us that there's another way to live or another way to live in relationship to all of that that's available to us in a way that is possibly more sane, more simple, more satisfying. And we see that by opening our heart, looking at the obsessing, obsessing qualities and capacities of the mind and realize that's really a lot of suffering. And in practicing, we learn to let go and we establish a different relationship to our bodies, our minds, our food, our friends, our possessions. And it's in this changed relationship that's not so needy and dependent and grabby and clingy, that's actually more fulfillment, more satisfying, more simple in a way. This activity of learning to let go is the practice of renunciation. Renunciation is one of the ten paramis that I've spoken about earlier, ten qualities of mind perfected by one who is to become a Buddha. The paramis are forces of purity in the mind. Renunciation is the purification of the mind of attachment and greed, clinging. When the mind practices renunciation, in each moment of renunciation, there is a letting go, a purification. The mind is free of greed. And so it's moving in that direction that the Buddha realized in the Third Noble Truth leads to the end of dukkha. With the end of craving comes the end of dukkha. So the practice of renunciation that is the practice of lessening craving, attachment, is the path to, well, what the Buddha was pointing to in the Third Noble Truth, the path to, the path to peace. Now, let's face it, the word renunciation doesn't inspire a lot of joy <laughs> if we're not informed. You know, when we think of renunciation, we think of some kind of tortured ascetic living in some cave or some cell, whipping themselves into a kind of submission or some, I don't know what it is, but it's not anything I want to practice. And if we look around our society, our culture, we don't have a lot of role models of successful renunciates. What, what would that look like? Nevertheless, I think we all recognize a place in our life that values, or a place in our heart that values the simplicity of a renunciation or renunciate life or monastic or living in seclusion, living in solitude, living simply. And I think we all resonate with that 
somewhere there's a place in us that that can see that and appreciate it and value it. You go to any monastery of any denomination, just hang out for a while, walk around. You get a contact hit of what takes place there and it's enjoyable at least. So we might say that there is a, the, the, the template, there's an archetypal template in our mind, in the psychic structure of the mind that appreciates, values, resonates with, renunciation if not being something of a renunciate. So I want to speak about renunciation tonight because it is um, a significant piece of uh, the Buddhist teachings and practice and because we don't really have a very wise understanding of renunciation. Uh, it doesn't get much creed, so to speak, in our society, and yet we all have some connection with it. Renunciation means letting go. But what we let go of is the quality of greed, hatred, aversion, and delusion as manifested through any number of behaviors. The grossest forms of greed and aversion is violent and brutal, is demanding, and it's easy to see that there's some wisdom in dropping that. But even here we have lived temporarily without our usual sensual gratification. And it's, it's comfortable but not luxurious by any means. And we do quite fine. And there's some quality of mind that gets activated that we appreciate. The Buddha said, if by renouncing a lesser happiness one attains to a happiness that is greater, then the wise person pursues the happiness which is greater. The happiness that is lesser, well, you know, if you, if you like candy, if you like sweets, if you like sex, if you like drugs, you like alcohol, you like, you know, going to the movies. I mean, those are sensual pleasures that for a while bring a kind of happiness, a joy, a pleasantness to the mind. And the Buddha didn't say there's something wrong with that. He just said they don't last. They often lead to addiction or obsession. And we find ourselves spending a considerable and maybe an inordinate amount of our lifetime pursuing, acquiring, consuming, well, fleeting pleasures. There's a famous experiment was done on poor little kids, or I should say kids, by 
tormenting psychologists who were <laughs> studying them, put the kids in a room, one at a time, and they gave all the kids a candy bar. And they said, okay, this is your candy bar, you can have it. But they said, you know, I gotta leave the room for a minute. If you still have the candy bar when I come back, I'll give you another one. But if you eat the candy bar now, that's the only one you get. Whereupon the psychologist would leave the room, close the door, and watch the kids through the one-way mirror. And some of the kids, they knew what they wanted. They'd peel that, peel that wrapper, eat that candy bar, totally satisfied. Other kids, they would just sit there, leave it right there, and wait for them to come back because they wanted two. <laughs> but the majority agonized. They'd look at it, they'd smell it, they'd maybe unwrap it, they'd, they'd want it, yes, but they knew if they didn't eat it, they could have more, and they were caught in this, some is good, more is better. And, well, we're faced with that decision all the time. We have that choice in front of us all the time with everything, the smoggish board of distractions that are offered us in our life. What is it we get if we consume it? Instant gratification. What is it we get if we delay, postpone, give up? Simpler life, less craving, less hankering, a sense of independence, um, strength of mind. It is, well, it's not that immediate pleasurable gratification, but there's some qualities of heart, qualities of mind that are subtler, maybe more enduring, but definitely heading in the direction of contributing to a sense of well-being. That's the choice that renunciation offers us. Can we forego some pleasure, immediate often, pleasure, enjoyment, for something that's a little subtler, maybe more enduring, and contributes to not just pleasure, but a sense of well-being that endures through pleasant and unpleasant, challenging and comfortable conditions. Okay, so that's the direction that renunciation is pointing us. But we should be clear that there is a high bar in renunciation also. And this was articulated by Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher of the last century who was just really extraordinary. And he says, renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. And with this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. A weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. We all have felt that. Get me off this treadmill. I don't want what it's offering. 
I don't need all that it's offering. I could live simpler and be quite happy. And we've all felt that. We all know that feeling. That feeling is the seed of renunciation within your heart, within your mind. Society doesn't support it. Your families don't support it. Cultures don't support it. It's a, a, a dormant seed in most of us until we come upon the Dharma, until we come upon some way of being in the world, temporarily or more permanently, that really values the simplicity that comes with living a life of renunciation. One immediate image that comes to mind when we think of renunciation is that it's going to be painful, that it's going to be living a life of deprivation, that we're going to be hankering for what we have to give up, and it's just going to be a kind of a, well, really unpleasant and kind of really difficult. But we have given up a lot in our life, and we never even noticed it as being difficult or painful. Remember when you were young, grade school, high school, and you had a favorite toy, or a doll, or a bike, or friend, or sport that you played, and it was just the all-consuming, this is what my life is about, and it offered you endless hours, days, weeks, or more, of fun, pleasure, excitement, anticipation, and it was just fulfilling and gratifying and rewarding to play with it or be involved with it. Remember that? Where is it now? Where's that doll? Where's that bike? Where's that friend? Where's that activity in your life? Gone. When you gave it up, when you let it go, when you outgrew it, did it hurt? Was it difficult? Was it torturous? No. Quite naturally, we just let go of the fascination with it. It, it no longer fulfilled us. It no longer satisfied us. We outgrew it. We grew in a direction away from that. Our needs, our desires, our, what fulfilled us became more well, either more or complex or different in some way. Well, we haven't stopped growing. Most of us think we reach adulthood and that's it. Now we're, we're kind of locked into adulthood. Good luck. Uh, you know, the next step is the end. <laughs> but you know what? We haven't stopped growing. You know, our interests, our needs, what fulfills us is still changing. In my early adult years, I was really into the Grateful Dead and, well, lived that lifestyle of deadheading. <laughs> Maybe that's what's the matter. <laughs> oh, poor me. Uh, you know, and, and just, it was very, it was just, it was my circle of friends for many years. And it was just, uh, what I did when on tour. So later I met the Dharma after some years 
um, practicing. Amazing conjunction of good karmic conditioning. I was doing a two-week retreat, the last day of which there was a Grateful Dead concert in the town next door. What could be better? You go on retreat, calm down, open up, get really sensitive, go to a show. <laughs> Unbelievable. It was unbearable. It was so loud and so overstimulating and so intense. It was not fun. It was not pleasurable. It was painful. What happened? Well, it wasn't just that I was sensitive. It's that in some way I outgrew that pleasure and I found a new way of feeling satisfied, at ease, content, uh, fulfilled in my life by practicing the Dharma, being quiet, being still, watching my mind. Not that it was so still, but just that that was more rewarding. But I didn't realize that I had left the dead behind. I thought it was still an active, uh, fascinating, enjoyable thing in my life until I went to that show and I realized, you know what? Not there anymore. Been there, done that. We all have vast, extensive attics in our mind of stuff, people, behaviors, habits, beliefs that we have acquired over the many years we've been growing up that are no longer necessary, they're no longer needed, but they may exert, they may still exert a pull on us and we act them out out of habit, out of pure mindless habit, we still do the things we've always done that used to be so satisfying and pleasurable and fulfilling. And now we just tolerate it. Well, why? Well, because we haven't really acknowledged that we've outgrown it, that we've let it go, that it no longer is fulfilling. It is important, and I think practice does it for us or with us to rummage through the attics of your mind and let go and just see what you don't need anymore. And then have the courage to live that way, to just let go of what doesn't, it's not necessary. Simplify, simplify, simplify. It's not even painful. It just takes some attention, some precision, some decision, and change behavior. When we come on a retreat like this, it's valuable because it breaks the momentum of our indulgent distraction. Whatever it is, we don't, we're so habituated to what we do day by day, just, we don't even know, we don't even pay attention to it anymore, a lot. And we come on retreat and we don't do that. We don't get our Starbucks, we don't read the New York Times, we don't check in the email, we're not online, you know, cruising for hours. We just, we don't do that thing or those things. We break the momentum and we see, you know what? 
I can get along quite well without that. Saving myself lots of time, money, effort, frustration, disappointment, aggravation, overstimulation. Now, when you go home, you have a choice. Are you going to pick it up or leave it be? Well, just because we see it for six days, seven days, doesn't mean it still doesn't exert a tremendous pull on the mind. It will, I'll tell you, it will. All of our habits are right there, dormant, just below the surface. And when the opportunity is there, our mindfulness often isn't. And, you know, it takes, we should, and we should be realistic and understand that even though we get a glimpse of another way of being, uh, it doesn't happen with a glimpse. It takes work, it takes effort, it takes continuity of understanding and application of awareness and uh, really recognizing what it is that's fulfilling, what it is that you need in your life. But nevertheless, we have let go of a lot in our process of growing up that was not painful, was not particularly ascetic, and didn't cause us a lot of harm. <coughs> so that's one way of renouncing a lot and pointing to how this practice invites us to let go of a lot more. A second form of renunciation Kamala mentions this afternoon is the active practice of generosity. Not because we have so much excess that we just got to get rid of it, but because we see the value in our heart of practicing generosity, of, of actively seeking out those opportunities to give, to share, to uh, support others in some way with our time, with our knowledge, with our material resources, with our wealth, with just, well, what is, what is it we give when we give anything? to someone. We give them our love. That's what we're saying to this person. I care about you. Here's a dollar to the, the Vietnam vet that's standing at the street corner. Or you give somebody some time. You're saying, I care about your life and I want to support it in some way. It doesn't have to be much. But we feel in our heart how valuable it is to let go to just let go, let go of anything that we've been attached to, identified with. And it's not that difficult if we pay attention, if we really pay attention to the feeling of practicing generosity, we'll refine our practice so that we get great joy from understanding the value of, of, of practicing generosity. That's a proactive form of renunciation. And really what we're giving away is our attachment. And what we're giving is our love. A third form of renunciation comes from knowledge. We learn through Dharma practice what causes us suffering? 
in paying attention to our moment-to-moment -moment experience, inevitably, the areas of our life, the memories of our life, in which there is pain, where there's unfinished work, where there's emotional dead ends or uh, challenging, uh, you know, regretful, uh, painful situations in our life come up for review because they're painful. There, there's some source of tension in the mind still there. And we see, you know, we haven't been all that skillful all our life. We've done things and said things and it's caused pain to ourself and we feel regret, remorse. It's caused pain to others. We've gotten condemned and criticized and blamed. And we see, this is, this, this is no way to live happily. And we can often see and feel the, not only the behavior or the misbehavior that caused that pain, but we feel the attachment to me. I was right. I want to be right. I got, you know, or I was careless or I was angry or whatever. And we see that and it's painful to, it's painful to come to discover these memories, these places in our life. But when we can apply mindfulness to them and see them for what they really were, oh, that's what was really going on. At the time, we don't see it. Our mind is totally confused. It's totally flooded with anger or greed or whatever. And we just see what we want and we get, go for it. Now, with a little more clarity of mind, a little more balance of mind, we see what we were actually feeling then not having felt it consciously at that time. And we realize how painful it is. And we can let go. We can let go now of what we have been holding on to. Some sense of ourself constellated in that activity that we feel shame about, that we feel guilty about, that we feel self-righteous about, or that we feel proud about, or whatever. And all of those states of mind are painful, and we feel that. Now we can re-experience this, feel it, see that it passes, see that it's impermanent, see that it was, and acknowledge, fully acknowledge the carelessness, the confusion, the ignorance, the greed, the, whatever it is, and let go of that sense of self. It's hard. It's hard to do. I'm, I'm not pretending that it isn't, but it is so freeing to be able to let go of long-held sense of self from unskillful behavior. The Buddha teaches the path of care, consideration in speaking and acting. It's sila. It's the living according to the precepts. More precepts here on retreat, or a little stricter precepts on the retreat, but as a householder, basically living by the precepts as a guideline to being careful how we relate to one another. <clears throat> but sometimes this knowledge is not enough. It doesn't square with our family conditioning, our cultural conditioning, or it's too severe, it's, it, it doesn't allow us to live like everybody else. Maybe. And so we, you know, we, we waffle, we, you know, maybe have a half-hearted commitment. We'd like to live that way, but we really don't want to. Uh, 
you know, so we, we live in confusion until we see in the depth of our own stillness and solitude and, and awareness that it's not so confusing. It's pretty painful. So we listen to what the Buddha has to say. We practice. We see for ourselves. To the extent we see for ourselves, we modify, usually gradually, which usually can't be done just overnight, but we modify our behavior to suffer less. When I was younger, I guess I've always been younger than now. <laughs> when I was younger, I used to smoke. And, you know, I started when I was 15 or something, smoking tobacco and other things. And I like to smoke. And, you know, smoke with a beer, with a beer is good. Smoke after, first smoke after a meal, really great, you know. And then the Surgeon General come out with a report that says, you know, smoking is dangerous to your health, might even cause cancer. Well, I ignored that for a few years, but eventually my hacking cough and, you know, <laughs> you know the expensive cigarettes kind of reminded me, maybe, you know, maybe you ought to give this up. And out of consideration of the consequences of a lifetime of smoking and seeing my father who smoked and the suffering he went through, I decided to give it up. Now, I liked smoking, but the thought of the consequences was not pleasant. So, I gave up smoking, which, you know, as, as any of you know who've given up smoking or other addictive substances, it's not easy, not really pleasant. But after some time, you see the benefit. You understand. You really know the benefit. You're living the benefit. And so you feel justified in, in, in that behavior. The Buddha said of such giving up, even though the pleasure is great, the regret is greater. It's easy to do that which is of no real benefit to oneself, but it is difficult indeed to do that which is truly beneficial and good. Living a life of purifying our speech and behavior is just that. Our society condones. Kamala and I were reading an editorial in the newspaper a couple of weeks ago, and the title of it was something like, The Right to Be Obnoxious is Guaranteed. <laughs> well, there was some Supreme Court case about somebody in some political, you know, thing being totally obnoxious to somebody else and just, I don't know if they were spreading lies or at least they were in a lot of insinuation and rumors and just, they were being totally obnoxious. And the court said, you know, in our society, freedom of speech guarantees that you can be obnoxious speaking. That's okay. But even though that is legal, and okay, it's not good enough to free the mind. Spiritual practice requires a higher standard of behavior. So we can't rely on societal norms or the mores of our culture to guide us in 
what is going to free us from suffering. We have to look elsewhere. And the place we look is our own heart. Because it's here that we see the truth. As we develop mindfulness and awareness, we will know what causes suffering to ourselves and others because we feel it. And then it's our choice. Do we act or not act in a way that causes ourselves or others suffering, harm, pain? We are, as Kamala mentioned that the Buddha said before, we are the light. We are the refuge. We, each one of us in our own heart and mind that wakes up will tell us what it is that has to be done. But we have to practice. We have to practice awareness in order to do that. Renunciation like this, changing behavior because of wisdom or understanding, is not easy. But it is supported by commitment. One time, after Kamala and I had been uh, away on a trip teaching, got home and we went out to eat to a nice restaurant just to kind of get home. And after a nice meal, we looked at the dessert tray and ordered the chocolate, 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 chocolate <laughs> thing. And when it came, we ate it. And promptly, I felt kind of miserable. The food was great, but the chocolate-covered chocolate, chocolate, chocolate-filled chocolate was a little too much. So in a blurt of, well, at the time it sounded like delusion, but probably was wisdom, I said, ah, I've had enough of this. I'm giving up chocolate for a year. Kamala, in her chocolate haze, said, <laughs> huh? I said, I'm sick and tired of this. Eating these desserts that spoiled my meal. I'm giving up chocolate for a year. You've got to be kidding. No, I'm not. Well, if you're not going to eat chocolate, I guess I won't either. So for a year, we gave up chocolate. With one exception. If they served chocolate on the plane, we would accept it. <laughs> now let me ask you, how many times you had chocolate served on a plane? Okay, so it was, it was pretty, I learned two things from that year. We, we went the year. I learned two things from that, that experiment. One is, key lime pie is not so bad. <laughs> and the second is, the power of an unwavering commitment is unbelievable. If you, if you can find a way to make a commitment and just say, that's it. All kinds of internal resources come to your aid to support you. I won't say it was easy. First few times we went to the restaurant and all it was was chocolate desserts or we had a friend's house and they got ice cream, chocolate, chocolate, and chocolate. You know, I mean, it's hard to say, mm, you know, I think I'll pass. But after a couple of reaffirmations of that commitment, it wasn't even a choice anymore. It's just like, didn't even consider it. Didn't let that option into the mind because of the power of that commitment and the interest to, to fulfill it and to see what to learn from that. 
It won't work with everything. It won't work every time. But it's worth experimenting with. So I encourage you. Consider the power of a decisive commitment. Because as we learn to let go based on our knowledge, based on our wise reflection of the way that leads to happiness, the way that leads to suffering, and reflection and reconsideration of our own life, we can simplify. We can, we can let go of a tremendous amount of unnecessary suffering-producing behaviors, activities, beliefs. And it's just, we just have to look in all honesty at our life and, and see what's there. But as you know, just looking at speech and behavior and how you can clean up your life and simplify and let go of some of the, kind of the grosser activities of life still leaves your mind to be really obsessed. You might not be acting it out, but you still want it. And the mind is just kind of churning and frustrated and unhappy and really uh, hankering sometimes. So we need uh, a, a subtler, maybe a stronger practice of renunciation, a way of letting go of obsessing in the mind. Because, let's face it, it is a habit that we've learned that was satisfying at some point in our life. And now it's compulsive, it's obsessive, it's addictive. Whether, whatever it is, whether it's worry or fear or, you know, uh, self-consciousness or whatever, whatever your particular obsessive state of mind is. We often know that it causes suffering. We feel it, but it has such a grip, or the, the habit has such a grip on the mind, can't let it go. For this, we need to, to um, discipline the mind. And it is mindfulness that is called upon to take a look. Because you notice in our practice here, <coughs> we come across all of the defilements just sitting still on a cushion. And when they come, we learn how to deal with them. Desire comes. And the fantasy comes. You know, some fantasy of some person, some behavior, some car. You know, and it comes. It's just kind of like, wow, rolling around in the mind. And you can see, Jesus, this is, you know, well, it's pleasurable for a while. It's distractingly pleasurable for a while. But after a while, it gets to be, all right, enough of this. What have I got to do with this thing to get a handle on this? And we try everything. We start noting. We, we you know, come back to the breath. We, we note the feelings in the body, the feelings in the mind, the thoughts in the mind. We note everything. An interesting thing happens if you keep noticing what's going on, eventually the desire is gone. Did you get your car yet? No, didn't get the car. Did you get that woman yet? No, didn't get that woman yet. Did you get that promotion? No, didn't get that promotion. What happened? You didn't satisfy that desire? 
you know what? The desire left the mind. Oh, the desire left the mind without being satisfied. We've all had that experience this in the last six days. That is invaluable knowledge. Invaluable knowledge. You don't, what it's telling you is you don't have to satisfy your desires. Whatever desire arises, you don't satisfy it. Well, if you didn't have any desires, maybe you had some anger, some irritation. You wanted to tell somebody off. You wanted to write a note. You wanted to tell them off. You thought about somebody at work, at home, in the neighborhood. When I get out of the retreat, I'm, I know what I'm going to say. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to fix it. Yeah, right. Well, you know what? Where's that anger? If you watch that anger, you watch that irritation, you watch that, those intentions to whatever, it's gone. It may come back, you get to review it again, you get to decondition that uh, indulgence. In time, we decondition these obsessive, reactive patterns of the mind that we, well, with less awareness, we'd be acting out. It takes practice to see them, to, to exercise the restraint, to, to watch closely enough to really understand the nature of aversion, the nature of fear, the nature of desire, the nature of anxiety, the nature of impatience, the nature of frustration, disappointment, despair, ambition. You see, and in time you learn, oh, this is the nature of it. You get really finely attuned to, as soon as the first bubble of any of these obsessing come into the mind, oh, you see it, oh, I see that. I, I'm familiar with that one. And you just watch it. You just watch it try to get a hold of the mind and it comes up and some thoughts and some memories. And you know, it, you think, and if you are there to watch it, it never gets a hold of the mind. It never gets established in the mind and it just passes away. Well, the first time you see your desire, your fear, your, your depression, it might take, well, it seems like it takes weeks, but eventually it only takes days sometimes even only an hour, and eventually it only takes a moment to see. Here it comes. Here's the possibility. I could, I could get caught in this, but you saw it, and you've seen it. You've deconditioned that habit. Decondition your habit. No longer caught in obsessing. Why? Well, because we've trained the mind to be aware to let go of obsessing as a strategy for, you know, things that happen in our life. This is invaluable. But you can see, there's no pill that is ever going to do that for you. There's no person that can ever do it for you. No partner, there's no money, there's no thing that is ever. What you want from this relief is not for sale. It's not for sale. It's only through training the mind with awareness that we can learn how to see, recognize, and not get caught by or not buy into the stories in our mind that turn into obsessions and unskillful behavior. However, a large part of our practice of mindfulness, developing wisdom, is right in the point, right in the space where mindfulness, mindful awareness, 
is good enough to see our obsessing. But our wisdom isn't refined enough to let go. And so we see our obsessing. We just see it over and over again. We feel totally caught, often overwhelmed, can't do anything about it. The process of learning enough about these habits of mind to actually understand them and let them go is it's, it's, it's a process. It takes some time. It takes some clarity of seeing over and over again to really fully understand so that the mind is finally willing to abandon that strategy. Whew. But in the meantime, we have to endure with piercing clarity the pain of the obsessing before we can let go, before we have the wisdom that knows how to let go. Well, this is, this is what you need a teacher for. Someone to encourage you, to reaffirm what you're doing is the right thing to be doing, to encourage you to offer some sort of uh, faith that, it, that it's happening, that it will, that it's possible. Um, otherwise, it's like, oh, why am I doing this? Or even with that support, you still ask, why, why am I doing this? But at least, you know, if, if they did it, or if they think they did it, or if they believe they can do it, well, I'm willing to try to. It's really, mindful awareness is really recognizing the capacity of the mind to know anything. The mind can know anything. In fact, it's the mind that knows everything. And ultimately, we will know. If we pay attention, we will know what causes us suffering. And we will have learned a way to let it go. When I talk about the letting go through continuity of mindfulness and just watching and seeing that in this case, oh, desire leaves the mind without being satisfied. Great. That's a form of renunciation due to awareness. I talked about the development of wisdom that eventually Wisdom is so sharp, so clear, understands so well that the obsessing never gets a toehold in the mind. The mind never gets gripped by it. Well, what is this understanding? It's not just the fact that, oh, here's desire, now it's gone. Here's aversion, now it's gone. Here's anxiety, now it's gone. Here's frustration, here's depression, now it's gone. But it's what's called in this practice, vipassana, jnana. It's the knowledge of insight, or it's an insight knowledge. There are three. I spoke about them briefly the other night, but let me put the Pali words to them so you, so you know what I'm talking about. The first is anicca. We really understand that everything's impermanent. And it's not that we understand it up here in the head, because as I mentioned, we all know that, things change. But it's that we understand it in our mind, in our heart, and we live it 
we live that understanding in every moment. So that whatever comes into the mind, whatever object is arising and being known, is known with the understanding that it's impermanent. Immediately. It's not that you've got to put words to it. You just know that characteristic of everything that enters the mind. When the mind knows that, it doesn't reach for, it doesn't cling, it doesn't grasp, it doesn't crave, it doesn't get attached to anything. Because the knowledge of impermanence arises with every known object. The mind doesn't have to let go anymore. It's not even hanging on. It doesn't even reach for it. It doesn't even have that movement of mind to go, to kind of reach for it. It just sees. Oh, that's the way it is now. Boom, 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 boom. It's not exercising a lot of restraint. The mind's knowledge is freeing. The second knowledge is the knowledge of dukkha. I mentioned that extensively the other night. When objects arise, the understanding in the mind is, this is painful, or this is unstable, meaning it's changing, or it's oppressive, it just is endlessly oppressive. And when the mind understands that about every experience that arises, and it might be difficult for you right now to think, every experience is dukkha, it's, you don't have to believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. We will discover that in practice. We'll see. Because it's unstable, it just isn't reliable as, well, what it means is if you grab onto it for your happiness, for your stability, for your sense of fulfillment, security, safety, it's not going to be there in a minute, a split second. And your happiness is gone with it. The mind knows that. The mind knows that about every experience when the insight knowledge of dukkha is mature. So whatever arises, the mind experiences fully. It's not in denial. It's not avoiding. It's not running away from. It's not kind of stuck in a mental cave somewhere, oblivious of everything. It sees what's happening, but it also understands correctly this is not something to be grabbed on. And it just lets life, lets, lets life arise and pass away, arise and pass away, arise and pass away. Now, does this mean that you can't have a family, you can't have a job, you can't have a car, you can't, you can't have and want things? You can. But the attachment to it being a certain way is what causes the suffering. If there really is this understanding, okay, there's... There's the partner, there's the job, there's the kids doing what they do, and there's total acceptance of it. Because we have that knowledge in our mind. We have that stability in our mind. We have the strength of mind to see things as they are. We don't ask for what is impossible to be delivered. If that person isn't doing it for you, you can't demand it. You can just see, this is the way it is. And it's okay. That knowledge, who can give you that knowledge? I'm giving it to you, but it doesn't work. You've got to see it from inside. You've got to learn it from inside. I'm just paying that kind of attention. 
The third knowledge is the knowledge of the what's called the anatta characteristic. The anatta characteristic is sometimes translated as the not-self characteristic or less skillfully it sometimes says or the selflessness or egolessness which these these words are just really bad translations of anatta characteristic because it's scary. Selflessness, what's that? Oh my god, I don't want that. Egolessness, how can I get by without an ego in the world? You know, forget it. That's not what it means at all. I mean those 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 just those words arouse more confusion than clarity. But let me explain how we experience the anatta characteristic. Something arises. We see that this has arisen because we're watching it, it has arisen due to conditions. We understand those conditions. Sometimes it's something from the past, something from the future, something from nearby, something that's associated with it. It arises due to conditions. Everything is conditional. Because it's conditional, and everything in all of those conditions are also conditional, what is of substance there? There really is no substance there. As I mentioned, it's like a rainbow. It's an appearance in the mind, due to conditions, that really has no inherent substance. The mind knows that. If the mind keeps watching, the mind knows that. The wisdom will understand. This is the way it is. This is an appearance due to conditions. If I grab onto it, it's just like grabbing a rainbow. Pretty unsatisfying. That's, that's the truth. That's what we see. That's what the wisdom of the mind knows because it's seen it over and over and over again. When the mind or wisdom knows this about every experience, wisdom doesn't reach for anything, doesn't reach, doesn't grasp, doesn't cling to, doesn't get identified. It just lets life unfold and is there for it, fully present, not expecting more, not frustrated by the way it is, not disappointed, totally at ease and content, peaceful. In fact, these three knowledges, the knowledge of impermanence, the knowledge of dukkha, the knowledge of the anatta characteristic, are the doorway to peace. It is through the maturing of these knowledges that the mind and the wisdom of the mind lets go. And there's one final act of renunciation in the Buddhist path of peace. And that is letting go of the known. Letting go of the known. Letting go of everything that is known. All physical, all mental, all emotional. Letting go. And when you let go of the known, the mind realizes the unconditioned, which is Nibbāna. Nibbāna is a reality, just like the physical world is a reality, the mental world is a reality, the mind is a reality, love is a reality. You know, it's, it's real, you can, you can taste it, you can feel it, it's, it's tangible in that sense. Nibbāna is a reality, but it's not the mind and it's not physical. It can be realized, it can be known. Its quality is peace, unshakable, enduring peace. 
This is what the Buddha is pointing to. The life of renunciation, renunciation of the mind, leads to peace. Every step of the way is peaceful in and of itself. And there is this reality of peace that's possible for each one of us through practice to uh, understand. It's from letting go. It's from learning how to renounce both the difficult, the easy, outgrowing things, using wisdom, reflection to let go of what's no longer skillful or needed, training the mind to stop obsessing, and seeing the truth. This is the way it is. Letting go of delusion, letting go of false understandings, letting go of what isn't so by seeing the way it really is. So as Ajahn Chah, again, the Thai meditation master of the last century said, so let go, put everything down. Everything except the knowing. Don't be fooled if visions and sounds Likes and dislikes arise in your mind during meditation. Just put them all down. Don't think a lot. Just know this is the way things are. Right now, nobody else can help you. There is nothing your family or your possessions can do for you. All that can help you now is the correct awareness. So don't waver. Let go. So let's just sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.